So open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 28. 1 Samuel 28. A story that uh, if you know your story of David, you, 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 you kind of had it uh, in your radar. We, we got to get to this at some point is the part that scared me the most whenever we started this journey uh, with David. But without a doubt, this is one of those stories that got me into the Bible to begin with. Uh, there, there, there are necromancers in the Bible. What are you going to do with that? Well, let's see if we come to answer that this morning. If you will stand with me out of reverence for God's word. I plan on taking that extra hour back from you by the end of uh, today. First um, Samuel 28, you'll find it on page 270 of your pew Bibles. We'll begin in verse 1. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. And David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I'll make you my bodyguard for life. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at, at Gilboa. When Saul, when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and acquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he had cast off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul, the king. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up. He is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. And Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me uh, and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord had done to you as he had spoken by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your son shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. And Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul when he... When she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life into my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it, and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. She put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. 
we will not finish this entire story this morning. So you have to come back tonight. But let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our God, thank you for your love and your mercy. Thank you for giving us your word. Uh, may we uh, uh, receive it uh, whenever you open our eyes and our ears and our heart and our mind, our mouths, our hands and our feet, uh, that your word would be received, believed, and obeyed. May I decrease so that you can increase. Name your son, we pray. Amen. Now, sit down. Tell me, if you will, what are some of your greatest fears? What are they? Can I give you two that have been around for a while and then all of a sudden I've had to add a third one in my life? The first you probably already know is heights. I don't like heights. Don't like anything to do about heights. God didn't invent us for the air, invented us, invented, he created us for, for the ground. And so I don't like heights. If by the time I get to the third step of the ladder, I'm done, right? If the light bulb is above the third step, it ain't gonna get changed. Right. If the bug that needs to be killed is higher than the third step, it ain't going to die. I don't like heights. Don't have anything to do with heights. I don't want to be on your roof. I, I don't I don't know. I don't like heights. The second thing I don't like is, is, is the great fear I have is being buried alive. That just creeps me out. No, is there a worse way to go than that? Uh, I, I don't know. But now there is a third great fear that I have that I've had to add. And that is uh, driving a brand new uh, a new model car and suddenly someone hacks into the car and takes control over all of it. The accelerator, the brakes, the steering wheel, the radio station. I mean, all of it is being controlled by, by someone who has too much time in their hands. You ever thought about that? We, we, we do enjoy the, the blessings of technology to, to the point that it makes our lives really convenient. And, and the technology that, that will allow for, for self-driving cars is the same technology that has the curse that it could be easily hacked into. Your brakes could, could no longer work. It, it, you could accelerate even faster and faster. And all of a sudden, you are in a, a dangerous situation that will certainly end in a wreck, and you have no control over it. If that doesn't scare you, then, then, then you are you're stronger than, and, and, and more courageous than anyone there, there is. Uh, that, that just creeps me out uh, beyond belief. And so on the one hand, modern technology has a host of blessings, but on the other, it has uh, a few curses to go with it. You could be enjoying your self-driving car when all of a sudden you are heading towards certain wreck. You will then be on a collision course and unable to stop. That is scary. But the reality is that for many of us, perhaps right now, we are on a similar collision course and it seems as if we have lost control. This moment of panic will, will, will quickly breed with it desperation and we will find ourselves making decisions that only make it worse. We then are like Saul, who is in a very desperate situation that, that he makes even worse. He is on a collision course with disaster. Let us begin with a setting here in verses 1 and 2. Now, as this chapter opens, the, 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 the narrative is set for us. Now, remember, the story has been about David, of course. That this, from chapter 16, has been predominated by David. But Saul's been a, a major, uh, the major villain, if, if you will. And so he comes up all, all the time. And in this, chapter, in this chapter, David's story is paused in order to allow this vignette of Saul. And, and as we'll see uh, later, that the, the two chapters, chapter 27, 
Adam chapter 28 are actually related. Both men, in their own way, are uh, compromising, and both ways are living in disobedience. But, but we see that the setting is reset for us in verses 1 and 2. We're reminded that in those days, David was with Achish, and that Achish, who is a king in, 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 uh, of the Philistines, is uh, working his way to attack the, the Israelites. So, uh, in fact, we see that David's situation is getting more dicey. Remember, David is, is lying about his role with the Philistines. David is, has the Philistines convinced he's attacking Israel, when in reality he's attacking Israel's uh, enemies. And so now what Achish does is that Achish attaches him, uh, David, to be his bodyguard. Now, as the text says, this is a lifelong appointment. And your primary job is, of course, to keep the king safe. The word for bodyguard in Hebrew literally means a keeper of my head. I'll let you figure out why it is called that uh, for the rest of the service. So, so that is the setting. The Philistines are attacking. They are showing up. And this, this is the same story we've read over and over again. Israel will attack the Philistines. Philistines will attack Israel. They meet in the middle. In fact, David's story began in the context of a Philistine battle where David had to fight Goliath. But now we see, yet again, these two are at war with each other. So we move from that setting to the scene in verses 3 to 7. The scene. Now, in a single verse, verse 3, a lot of history is summarized. Notice there, Samuel had died and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city, and Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. Now, two things is very clear here. First of all, Samuel, the prophet, is dead. Now, we saw this all the way back in chapter 25. Remember, Samuel got one sentence obituary, right? <laughs> I mean, here's the, one of the most influential prophets and judges of all of his Israeli history, and he got like a single verse. Now he gets half a verse, right? I don't know if, that's, if that is much better. But, but this is a significant event. Samuel looms large over the narrative even when he is not mentioned by name. And he was an incredibly important voice to Saul, even when Saul ignored everything Samuel had said. The second thing we see here is a reminder that Saul has outlawed witchcraft. He has outlawed witchcraft. Now, we need to note here that, that the Bible says a lot about this sort of stuff. And, and for example, in Leviticus 19.31, do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Don't seek them out. Or Leviticus 20, a man or woman who's a medium or necromancer shall surely be put to death. That's pretty straightforward. Uh, in Exodus 22, shall not permit a sorceress to live. Uh, in in uh, Revelation, as for the cowardly, the faithless, uh, the, the detestable, and as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire. Right? Or, or how about Galatians chapter 5? Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Purity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, uh, drunkenness, and things like these. I warned you as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Or we can go back to 1 Samuel 15, right before uh, uh, David is consecrated. It says, for rebellion is as the sin of divination, and the presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Notice here that divination is a severe sin and how it is used as a comparison. Now, one of the reasons this is the case is 
the, the, the nations around Israel practice this in their pagan rituals. They, they, they practice this and they have all their own unique, bizarre ways of doing it. And the fear of Israel was always that instead of being a light to the nations, the nations would then become a light unto Israel. And one of the ways that would manifest is, yes, idolatry, which is the way we usually see it, but also uh, sorcery and, and, and mediums and necromancers and everything else. So early on in his administration, Saul outlawed this completely from all of Israel. Now, this reminds the reader, doesn't it, how far Saul has fallen. He's gone from outlawing these acts to now he is turning to them in his moment of deep desperation. He began his race well, but he is finishing it quite poorly. And the very thing he rejected at the beginning, that is the God of Israel, he now rejects. The thing he rejected, that is witchcraft, he now trusts in. And so in verses 4 to 6, we see Saul's desperation clearly laid out for us. Now, now the Philistines have arrived, right? They've got their army. Uh, they're setting up camp. Battle is about to, to take place. And in this moment, we see Saul feeling very desperate. This collision course that Saul is on is, is now stirring his anxiety. He is in a full-fledged panic. Notice how this manifests itself in Saul's life. First of all, Saul was threatened. It's right there in verse 4. Saul, Saul, that, say that a thousand times. Say it one time is enough. Saul, Saul, the army of the Philistines. Now, remember, Saul has fought many, many battles. We've seen some of these in our study of David. He had fought particularly many battles against Philistines. And I don't recall him ever being that scared. He wasn't threatened by the Philistines. Now, he didn't mess with them. He wanted peace with them, but he never felt threatened by them. Now, sure, even whenever Goliath shows up, there's Saul in the corner. But what does he have? He's got a champion in his side, David. And then when David beats Goliath, who does he have at his side? He's still got David, the giant slayer. But as Saul sinks further into disobedience, we see the unraveling of Saul's soul, and it has stirred anxiety of his soul. Now, this should sound familiar to many of us living in modern America right now, right? How many Americans were spiritually malnourished and then COVID-19 hits? Look, COVID-19 hasn't caused spiritual malnourishment. It has proven we were already spiritually malnourished. And as a result, rates of anxiety and bitterness and fear and envy and sorrow and hurt is skyrocketing amid such uncertainty and threats. We see not only is Saul threatened by the Philistines, he is afraid of the Philistines. In fact, the text says very clearly there in verse 4, he was afraid. Have you noticed how often this theme has shown up in the story of David thus far? Both Saul and David are prone to be driven by fear, as are all of us. In the Pixar movie, I won't mention it's Disney because they're evil, but in the Pixar movie, Ratatouille, uh, the premise of the movie is that the chef isn't good at cooking. And then there's this rat in the kitchen. I'm just going to leave that plot hole just hanging there, if you will. There's a rat in the kitchen of this fancy restaurant who is good at cooking. Do with that whatever you want. And so what happens is the rat hides in the chef's hat controls his entire body by pulling his hair, leave that plot hole out there, and, and through the rat, 
hidden in the hat, the, the, the chef is now just this brilliant chef. That is to say, the chef is controlled by a hidden creature inside his head. Now, it makes for great humor, but unfortunately, many of us are controlled by things in our very soul. We can call that fear, couldn't we? Think about it. What are the Philistines to God? We could ask Saul. What is COVID-19 to the Lord? What is an election to Christ? What is secularism to the gospel? Fear is spiritual baggage that can only be remedied by the cross. Here, Saul is gripped by fear. He feels his life is threatened. His kingdom is about to be taken from him. And David is on their side. And, and he doesn't know what to do. His, his panic and his desperation are getting worse and worse. And he doesn't know where to turn. And as a result, as he's going off the cliff, he's preparing for, for, for that edge. What does he do? Is, is he allows it to consume his soul. In fact, we could add one more thing to Saul. Not only is he threatened and afraid, but Saul is alone. Saul is alone. In fact, notice there, it says that the Lord did not answer him. Notice the eerie silence of this passage. You can hear the footsteps of the soldiers marching, one group to Shunem, another to Gilboa. You can hear Saul seeking counsel and guidance from anywhere he can find it, but the silence of the reply from God is deafening, isn't it? The Lord did not answer him. Now, for a king at this time, there were three ways the king would hear from God. Uh, and they're mentioned here. The first is a kingly means. Saul's spiritual and moral downspiral has cut him off from hearing the voice of God. When was the last time in the story of Saul that Saul actually cared about the will of God? And as a result, he has cut himself off as king to the Lord. You see it there when he mentions dreams. I'm not getting the dreams that, that I used to get. I used to not get the guidance from this kingly means of dreams. The second means uh, is, is, is priestly means. You see it there mentioned, the, the earl there. Uh, we, we are in um, uh, verse, uh, verse 6. Yeah, verse 6, the earl. Now, we don't have time to talk about the earl, and you can add its sister, the thurum or whatever it is. Um, but but let it be su sufficient to know that this was a, a, a probably a, a stone from the priest ephod. Uh, but it, it is oftentimes used as a means to determine the will of God. Now, can you tell me why Saul cannot get hear the voice of God from the priest? Anybody? Bueller? Bueller? Let me tell you. He killed them. It's hard to hear from the dead. Wait, we got to keep reading the story, don't we? That's right, my man. So remember, he went down the knob because he got his feelings hurt and he wiped them all out. And then you remember one guy escaped. And you remember what that guy did? He took the priestly ephod, which perhaps has the Urim and the Thurim on it. And where does he go? He doesn't go to Saul. Hey, Saul, before you kill me, I just, you're going to need this. What does he do? He flees to the true king of Israel consecrated by God. So it is in David's possession on the other end of the border with the Philistines that has the priestly garments and the priests. No wonder he's not hearing from the priests. There's a third means of hearing the voice of God that Saul points to. It's the prophetic means. Of course, Samuel is dead. We'll get to more specifics about him tonight. 
But let us not forget that when Samuel was alive, how often did Saul just ignore him? Just completely ignored everything that Samuel had said. We get the mention of Amalek here. Remember that the Samuel said, you got to wipe out the Amalekites, everyone. And what did Saul do? Okay, but can I have the king as my little pets? Just completely ignores everything that the prophet tells him to do. And now, in this moment of desperation, he, he is ready to receive, and yet the voice from above is quiet. That's the scene that we have here. This leads to the symptoms of his desperation, the symptoms of his demise. What is causing this? Well, desperation has a way of leading us down a dangerous path. Here is Saul, one of the more powerful men in the world. He's gripped by fear and anxiety and loneliness. What good is all this physical power and wealth when you are spiritually weak and poor? One of the things I was, I was reading this text, and to be quite honest, it's kind of predictable, isn't it? If, if you're a coach, right, and, and say you're a college or, or a professional coach, because I've coached, but I'm not watching film of all the teams I play. I mean, I have a life. But, but if you get paid full-time to do this, you'll get the tape. Uh, that makes me sound old. You'll get the tape of, of the other team you're about to play, and you'll watch all their games, and you'll figure out, okay, can I predict what it is that we're going to get? So if you're a basketball coach and you're saying, okay, uh, uh, player A, you're going to guard this guy over here. He's a point guard. What you're going to do is you're going to notice he really loves to go right. We're going to guard him so that we force him to go left, make him use his weaker arm, right? You, you, you want to be able to predict um, uh, what is coming, that your players are ready for it. And the reason is because many players in sports are predictable, as is Saul, as are many of us. The, the, the downward spiral of Saul is predictable to the point he's willing to go anywhere for answers. Notice the, the symptoms that we have here of his demise. The first is that of deafness. I don't know if you've ever spent a significant time in the hospital or not, but the nurses will come to you about every day after a while, and they do this annoying thing where they make you get out of bed. Isn't that awful? I mean, look, I'm paying a lot of money for this bed and this nasty food. Do not make me walk, right? Now, why does the nurse make you do that? Well, because they're trying to prevent um, atrophy. I'm not a doctor, nor did I play one on TV. Now, if you do not use your muscles they will become progressively weaker. The same is true when it comes to listening to and following the will of God. When we shut ourselves off, when we become spiritually atrophied, we lose the ability to hear from God and the desire to hear from God. What we'll find is we'll turn everywhere else first before we turn to the one with all the power and answers. And notice the trajectory of Saul. He is on a collision course with destruction. And the irony of the passage is, of course, that he conjures up Samuel while he spent his life ignoring him. He spent his life ignoring him. Can I tell you why your desperation, that in your desperations, the heavens seem shut off to you? It is the simple reason that prior to your moment of desperation, you had shut off the heavens. The problem is not the silence of God. It is often the deafness of our own hearts. It isn't just deafness that Saul has here. There is decay that he has here. Both David and Saul are on dangerous 
pass. David, comp, David's compromise leads him to risky situations that is about to put him in a desperate situation. We'll see that, Lord willing, next time. I mean, after all, will he really help the Philistines attack the Jews? It's hinted at here, isn't it? But notice the absence of God in chapter 20. We didn't talk about this last week because I thought it would be more powerful to see it here. God, the Lord, is never mentioned in chapter 27. In fact, the first time he's mentioned is when Saul promises the witch, the necromancer, as the Lord lives, ain't nothing going to happen to you. It's the first time he ever cared about what the Lord would and would not do. God has been eerily silent to both men. And we see then that the path toward spiritual desperation, spiritual disease, spiritual disaster begins by looking within before we ever look up. David thinks he is wise in fleeing Saul in favor of Achish. Yet David proves to be a fool. Saul is no different in his own circumstance. He is trusted in his own military. He's trusted in his own system. He is trusted in himself more. He is trusted in the word and will of God. And how many of us seek God after disaster strikes when we should have sought him prior to such disaster? You know that if you're going 50 miles an hour down the road, you need about 125 feet to come to a complete stop. I didn't test that this week, but I trust it sounds good enough. I found it on that political website I was talking about, so it has to be true. But if you were to double the speed, go to 100 miles an hour, you need more than three, almost four times the speed or the distance in order to come to a complete stop. This is to say, the faster you go, the faster you go, the harder it is to stop and the more likely it is that you are going to crash. Spiritual decay is a pushing down of the accelerator. Before long, you lose control. You won't be able to stop. And before long, disaster comes. I came across an interesting story, mostly because uh, one morning I, I saw our garbage men take our garbage. I'm an insomniac. Just deal with it. And one of the things I couldn't help ask myself, that if I had that job, that would stink. It would. It would. And that's kind of the point, isn't it? It's why you don't want to be a garbage man. Because you think, how in the world can you stand in front of the mouth of that stinkness and, and survive? We know the answer to it. If you do this for eight hours a day, five to six days a week, you know what's going to happen? You don't smell it anymore. You don't smell it anymore. You simply overcome it. In fact, one garbage man explaining this phenomenon said in uh, an article, um, I don't think I could rashly explain how elements like the aforementioned the smell of the garbage, no matter how often I had to deal with them, uh, that working would be uh, every day, would just stop smelling. Apparently, the way to stop smelling the stuff is to smell it all day, every day. The same is true when it comes to spiritual decay. At first, it is repulsive. At first, you can't manage it. At first, it's too much. But before long, it's just simply part of your life. And there you are going faster and faster down the streets without any desire to come to a stop. This leads thirdly to Saul's disobedience. Saul has been driving at full speed towards the cliff. And what began as mere foolishness, like whenever he, he, he had his army vow fast 
and that nearly uh, killed him by, by starving to death. He has led him down a path of rebellion and disobedience. He started his race well, but now he is careening off a cliff. Saul illustrates what happens when the sinner refuses to repent. Saul's convinced that if only he could fix that one problem, maybe it's the Amalekites, maybe it's the Philistines, or it's probably David. If he can fix that one problem, he would be happy, he would be famous, he would be respected, his kingdom would be eternal. Yet it is all a lie. One act of disobedience will lead naturally down to another and another. Before long, you're slave to your desires and you're a victim to the consequences. Let Saul be a warning to you. There are some who today refuse to deal with sin in their lives. Would you deal with it today? There are some who refuse to deal with the bitterness of your hearts. Will you deal with it today? There are some who refuse to forgive, refuse to heal, refuse to fight for righteousness, refuse to, uh, to, to be righteous. Do something about it. If there's conflict in your marriage, deal with it. If there's a secret sin in your life, deal with it. If you are on the road of compromise, deal with it. If you're gripped by worry and anxiety, deal with it. Today is the day that we need to turn around before we go down this road too fast and are unable to stop. Don't deal with it after you move, after things calm down, after there's a vaccine, after the election. No, today is the day we must deal with it to avoid this cliff. If you're too busy for spiritual health, then clear your schedule. If you're too distracted, too tired, too afraid, too uncertain, do what is necessary to deal with the disobedience and the decay of your heart. And this leads finally the predictable end to it all, and that is desperation. Panic stirs foolishness. Saul says, oh no, the Philistines. Early in his reign, when he was obedient to God, he didn't need to fear them. But the minute he began down this road, fear and worry gripped his heart. And now the Philistines stir panic, which stirs desperation. Saul rationalizes witchcraft because of hopeless desperation. And the minute we surrender spiritual health, we choose death and de- dead deeds. How many more vulnerable women, for example, will wrap their arms around losers because they feel desperate? How many parents panic during the teenage years? Business owners panic during recessions. Pastors panic at the rise of secularism. Churches panic amid change. We do this, don't we? We allow ourselves to panic, which is a reflection of our spiritual health, and that will always lead to disaster. Remember, to live by faith means that, that, that circumstances determine nothing when we are anchored in Christ and Him crucified. See, we've been talking a lot about driving over a cliff. There is still time for you this morning to hit the brakes. But there is no one controlling the car. You are. You are. So why are we afraid to slam them? Saul gets something terribly wrong here. The problem isn't that he's desperate. We've all been there, right? That's a human experience. He is desperate. The problem is, is that he allows his panic, he allows this moment to turn him away from God rather than to God. If we had time, I... We would look at Matthew 15. We we did so, I believe, on Mother's Day, so you can go back and see our discussion of it. But it's the story of the Canaanite woman who comes to Jesus and she says, Have mercy on me. My daughter is sick. She's demonized. You remember what Jesus says? 
You're a Gentile. I ain't got no time for you. You remember what she said? She said, but, but using the metaphor of a dog, God, Jesus used that metaphor of a dog. She says, yes, but even a dog is content with the crumbs of the master's table. You see, you see her story? She is desperate for Christ, desperate for salvation, desperate for healing. And in a moment of desperation, she didn't run to the dark arts. She didn't run to the papers. She didn't run to the television. She didn't run to the politicians. She didn't run to the lawyers. She didn't run anywhere else. She ran to Christ. Much as we see the same thing throughout Matthew. In Matthew 8, the leper is cleansed. Remember, he, he shouts because he can't be near. God, be merciful to me. In the same chapter, we, we meet the centurion who will travel far and wide to see Jesus. says, my servant is dying. I am desperate for you to heal him. What about the calming of the storm? Lord, save us. What about the healing of the paralytic? Lowered down from the roof because nothing was going to stop them from getting to Jesus. But the raising of a dead girl. No hope but that she would be risen by Christ. The woman with the issue of blood, who could just, if she could just touch his robe, she would find salvation. What about the blind men being healed? God, be merciful to us. Son of David, be merciful to us. I don't know where you are, but I know you hear me. Will you answer? What about the feeding of the 5,000? At the point of starvation, Jesus has him sit down. He breaks bread. What about the walking on the water? Over and over again, it is these moments of desperation that lead people to Christ. Or it will lead you off the cliff. In fact, there's a clear evidence of this in this text. It's right in front of you if only you would see it. And maybe you have seen it. You remember what Saul says before he turns to the witch, which we'll look at tonight. He says, I'm not hearing from God. I'm not getting dreams. There is no Urim. And there is no priest. Can I tell you what, where Saul really makes the mistake? The root of his and our weakness. Saul was turning to the wrong prophets. He was trusting in the wrong priests. He was hoping in the wrong king. The glory of the gospel is right now in Christ. We have and we can hear from the one who is all prophet, priest, and king. As prophet, he speaks the words of God and he delivers them to us from God himself. As priest, he stands in our place and for our sins, offering his very self as lamb and priest to the Father. Therefore, we are no longer subject to the accusations of the evil one, but we are free from our sin and our shame and our guilt. And as king, he rules and reigns over this universe. It doesn't matter what happens Tuesday. It doesn't matter what's happened in 2020 because Christ is on his throne. The answer to our desperation is simply to trust in the one who is prophet, who is priest, and he is king. If only we would be like that woman and run to Christ and not like Saul, who keeps careening off the cliff. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.